Thank you. And again, good morning. This morning I would like to talk with you about the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for my text, I would like to use 2 Peter chapter 1 and the first four verses. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn there, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now before we look at the text, I'd like to share a few thoughts with you. You know, you can learn much about a man by listening to the passion of his heart just before he dies. Especially for the Christian, the finality of death causes a man to dwell only upon those things most important to him. For a godly man, what matters most is the spiritual condition of those he leaves behind. Such was the case with Peter. Peter was about to be crucified for his faith in Christ, and he was probably martyred within months after writing Second Peter. In his first epistle, in First Peter, we see his passion to offer triumphant hope for suffering saints as they faced mounting persecution. But here in Second Peter, his dying passion was to warn the church of something even more sinister, more subtle, more deadly than external persecution. His parting words were a warning about false teachers, false teachers that would rise up from inside the church and deceive the flock of God, satanic emissaries teaching doctrines of demons that are so convincing, so appealing, yet so devastating. And as you read his letter, you can feel the sense of divine urgency in his inspired words, like a man who had uncovered a vast and demonic conspiracy he pins these words of utmost caution, warning us about those who would prey upon the sheep. And in order to spot counterfeit religion, he begins his letter describing the truth concerning the gospel of Christ. Because the best way to spot a false teacher is to be so familiar with the truth of Bible doctrine that the slightest deviation will become glaring. So here in the first four verses, he reminds us of the essence of the true gospel that exposes the essence of the counterfeit gospel that is often taught by false teachers. And here we have a summary of the gospel, all of which centers around the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see in verse 1 that his righteousness saves. And secondly, in verses 2 and 3, that his we're going to see his resources empower. And thirdly, we're going to see that his promises transform. First of all, notice Christ's righteousness saves us. In verse 1, he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a sharp contrast to false teachers who serve themselves. A bondservant is literally... A slave, in the original language, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is his master. And a slave is marked by humility and love, submission and obedience. Being a slave of Christ is a common theme in the New Testament, one that the culture understood very well. 
Think of the parallels between being a Roman slave and a slave of Christ. The Roman slave was bought with a price by their master who owned them. They were totally devoted to the will of their master, not their own will, and they did only what was pleasing to him, and they served no other master. In fact, all discipline and reward came from their one master. They were dependent upon their master for provision and for protection. The slave had no identity at all apart from his master to whom he belonged. What a tremendous privilege it is for us to be slaves of Jesus Christ. And Peter also said that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Therefore, a man that was chosen by God and empowered and commissioned by God himself. So here Peter expresses the sincere humility of his heart, as well as the marvelous privilege and authority of his divine appointment. So he says in verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, dear friends, we see the centrality of Christ and His righteousness that saves us, not our own. This presupposes our depravity. It presupposes our inability to save ourselves and our profound need for undeserved mercy and the marvels of His grace. It presupposes a heart of contrition and thanksgiving and obedience and self-denial of service and worship. All of these selfless attitudes are contrary to the essence of a counterfeit gospel that offers some kind of salvation by works, where men are told to believe that somehow they can achieve their own righteousness through good works or through some religious ritual, and therefore obligate God to save them. Notice that he writes to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, as believers, we all have been given the gift of faith. When, by the power of regenerating grace, the Holy Spirit breathed life into our spiritually dead corpse of depravity and caused us to see the truth about our sin and our desperate need for the Savior. Notice Peter says, we have received a faith. Indeed, it was a gift from God. We cannot share in the glory of our salvation. It is all of grace from beginning to end. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In our faith, we embrace the finished work of Christ on the cross on our behalf, understanding that He died in our stead. And while we may not fully understand all of the nuances of saving grace when we are first born again, as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, we ultimately learn that it is the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to us that reconciles us to God. This is the great doctrine of justification, where we are declared righteous by God because of Christ's righteousness. In fact, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 4, we read, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, 
His faith is reckoned as righteousness. Reckoned literally means to be credited. It was a financial or legal term, which means to enter into the account book. It was a one-sided transaction. You see, dear friends, when we believe, God takes his own righteousness and credits it to us as if it were our own. So when Peter speaks of those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he summarizes the very essence of the true gospel proclaimed by Jesus and the apostles. Salvation is made available only through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation ultimately depends on God, not ourselves, though we are responsible to believe. Scripture is clear that our faith to believe and the righteousness of Christ necessary to reconcile us to our holy God are both a gift from God. So Peter begins by reminding us of the very heart of the gospel, that we must have a righteousness that is not our own, the righteousness of Christ. But secondly, he tells us about Christ's resources that empower us. Notice in verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace are marvelous terms. Grace is that transforming reality whereby God lavishes his affection upon a sinner. When he stoops to pardon those who are without hope in themselves and frees them from the dominion of sin and forgives them. Then peace is the peace that we have with God. When our sins are forgiven, when the war is over, when the fountain of divine blessing is opened, as Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, this is an objective peace, not some subjective peace. In order to receive grace and peace, we must understand that we have nothing that God needs. We have nothing that impresses Him. In fact, the only thing we have to contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We have nothing that God desires, no righteousness of our own, but we all have a need, and that need is for forgiveness. And He gives that to us freely when we believe in Christ. What amazing resources we have in Christ. What astounding provisions He has given to us to cope with life and live for His glory. And Peter adds that we can have both grace and peace multiplied to us. And how can that be? And he answers that in verse 2. It's through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You see, faith requires knowledge, a term in the original language that means a comprehensive, intimate, objective understanding of a subject. And here the subject is of God and of Jesus our Lord. We must have an intimate, detailed, comprehensive, in-depth knowledge of God, not some shallow understanding based on emotional intuition or personal experience, but based upon the facts of Scripture. 
This is far more than merely knowing some facts about God after confessing Christ as Savior and Lord. It involves knowing Him so well through the revelation of Himself in Scripture that we actually know Him intimately and enjoy a dynamic and personal relationship with Him, something that I like to call a secret devotion. And this comes about only through a disciplined study of Scripture, and a decisive commitment to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. This is what Peter had in mind in chapter 3 and verse 18 when he said that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter was very concerned about this issue of doctrinal knowledge, knowing that false teachers, empowered by the ingenious deceptions of Satan, would rise up from the ranks of the true church. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7:15, "Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing." The idea that they're going to appear to be legitimate shepherds, but he went on to say they are inwardly ravenous wolves. And again, the best way to spot a counterfeit is to know the genuine article. Notice more that he says about our resources that empower us in verse 3. He says, "Seeing that his Divine nature has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Dear friends, this is such a powerful statement. His divine power. Think of that. This is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Here the grammar indicates that this is something that occurred in the past, but has continuing results in the present. You see, when we were transformed or when we were born again at salvation, He supplied us with supernatural spiritual power and all of the resources we will ever need for the process of sanctification. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have everything we need to cope with whatever comes our way in life. All we need to know, to love, and to serve and enjoy our God. Oh, child of God, please hear this. Without a settled assurance of the sufficiency of Christ in all the resources that He has supplied in your salvation, you will always be chasing some phantom cure for problems in your life. And Satan has provided a vast smorgasbord of counterfeit resources. So be very careful to take your counsel only from the Word of God, rightly divided. So he says that we are given everything pertaining to life and godliness, notice, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. My friend, I would ask you, do you have a true knowledge of Christ? Do you really know who He is? Do you see Him in all of His glory and worship the majesty and the holiness and the sovereignty of His name? Do you marvel at His character? If not, I would encourage you to immerse yourself in the Word of God and gain the true knowledge and commit yourself to being a faithful slave of Christ. Only then will you truly experience the power of the resources that He has given you. So Peter reminds us of Christ's righteousness that saves us, of His resources that empower us, and finally, His promises that transform us. Notice in verse 4, he says, for by these, and we might ask the question, for by what? What's he referring to? And the answer is the attributes of Christ's character. 
and all of his redeeming work that purchased your salvation. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Obviously, Peter was thrilled with the prospect of all of the promises inherent in salvation that he was currently experiencing as God sustained him in the midst of his imprisonment and in the face of his imminent crucifixion. But also, he was thrilled knowing the fulfillment of these promises that he would soon experience on the occasion of his death. Just think, God the Father, who has called us and adopted us, is the one who protects us and provides us, provides everything for us through his omnipotent might, and he is the one that has promised never to leave us nor forsake us and give us eternal life. And God the Son sits at the right hand of the Father and mediates as our advocate and high priest. He is the one that has gone away to prepare a place for us and has promised to come again and receive us unto himself. And God the Holy Spirit is the one that indwells, sanctifies, instructs, empowers all of these things to glorify God, and he even seals us unto the day of redemption. So here Peter declares a marvelous truth. We are the undeserved recipients of all his precious and magnificent promises for this life and the next. Why? He goes on to answer that. He says, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Literally, so that you can share in the very life of God. So that you can have eternal life with all its infinite glory. Oh, child of God, this is the power that transforms us into his glorious image. And in the end of verse 4, he says that because of this, we have, notice, escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Think of that. We have escaped all the rotting decay of wickedness that is in the world. All the foul-smelling decomposition of moral impurity and idolatry brought on by the wicked desires of sinful men. And someday in heaven, we will experience the fullness of our salvation when we are delivered completely from the metastasizing corruption of sin, when we stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Oh, what hope we have in Christ, dear friends. And may I challenge you, today, to lay hold of these amazing blessings that we have in Christ. You see, once again, this is the very essence of the gospel. His righteousness saves us. His resources empower us. And His promises transform us. How different from the false teacher that would say that somehow your righteousness can save you, and that you have to depend upon your own resources for power, and that the promises that who whatever God you believe in gives to you is going to transform you. What a lie. What a wretched lie. What a damning lie. What an eternal lie. Dear friends, if you have not confessed Christ as Savior and Lord, I plead with you to do so today before it is too late. He is a loving God that has offered you grace, has offered you forgiveness. And I plead with you 
to cry out for that mercy and grace and make Him the Lord of your life. Will you pray with me? Oh, sovereign God, reach down right now in your infinite mercy and save those who are lost in their sins. And by your grace, teach us these great truths that you have seen fit to reveal to us in your precious word. For it is in Jesus' name that I pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. That's a great message. Uh, that's a great uh, Pastor David. Thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to have you again next time. Thank you very much, Luciano. And God bless you. God bless you, sir. Bye-bye. Goodbye now.